0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Third Wheel, a podcast from Herbert Smith Freehills on all things ESG. I'm Tim Stupp, partner in our Sydney office specialising in corporate governance and ESG, and I'm driving solo today. My usual co-host, Merle Debenham, is off doing site visits, but never fear, we still do have our quota of three wheels for today's podcast because I'm joined by two expert guests – Jojo Fan, partner in our Hong Kong Disputes Practice, and Mark Smythe, partner in our Sydney Disputes Practice. Welcome, Jojo and Mark. Today, we're going to have a discussion about climate change and ESG litigation in the consumer sector, covering some recent developments in Australia, Hong Kong, and Greater China. But before we get into it, we'd like to start the podcast with a personal reflection from our guests on what ESG means to them and why it's important. Mark is a second time guest, so we might start with Jojo. Would you like to kick us off? Why is ESG important to you?
1: Thanks, Tim. Sure. Um, ESG is a long-term strategic issue for businesses. Uh, it requires more than just a box-ticking exercise, often very, uh, a shift of mindset at the top of the organization is very essential for delivering effective ESG measures. In order to stay on top of the um, rapidly changing ESG landscape, companies are seeking to comprehend and meet the legal, regulatory, investor and customer expectations. The challenges they face are multifaceted as they strive to ensure business resilience, protect access to capital in a changing market, provide greater levels of corporate responsibility and transparency, and take into account climate and ESG risks in their decision making. ESG matters can also bring about real regulatory and litigation risks. Hong Kong has so far not really faced any ESG-related claims, either in court or in the regulatory space. But there is a significant increase in regulatory pressure to address ESG issues. Just a very brief example, the um, Securities and Futures Commission in Hong Kong has indicated that they are mindful of ESG commitments and are stepping up scrutiny on how the market participants meet that expectation. The CEO of the SFC has actually highlighted the unique position of Hong Kong and ESG developments in a recent speech by saying that Hong Kong's financial market is where global capital connects with mainland enterprises. So what we do here can have an outsized influence on global developments in green and sustainable finance.
0: Mark, I know you've answered this question before. <laughs> I think in episode four, you were, you admitted to being an admin law nerd. Is there anything you want to add to, uh, to, to Jojo's thoughts?
2: Yeah, no, that's exactly right, Tim. As I said uh, in the first podcast, I've always been a bit of an admin law and a politics nerd, so... Um, For me, I really enjoy the intersection that ESG raises with, you know, regulatory issues, government policy issues and how our clients sort of seek to respond to that highly evolving landscape. Um, And as Jojo said, it is rapidly evolving and that makes it really fascinating to be involved in at a personal level and to be able to help clients with, Um, whether it's, you know, in Australia as part of the E in ESG uh, we've seen so much happening in the energy transition um, space um, and really exciting opportunities for our clients, um, as well as a lot of um, attended sort of litigation and activist issues that we'll probably come on to a bit later, um, as well as in the social and governance space, the S and the G um, issues that go to the very heart of um, companies, uh, social licenses on issues you know, ranging from uh, relationships with employees, relationships with uh, Indigenous communities, uh, to compliance with broader human rights issues. So uh, for me, um, it, it does feel uh, like a real privilege to get to be uh, involved in um, quite an exciting space.
0: Just on that point around this area evolving, you know, one of the things we've seen has been a vast increase in climate change litigation globally. Um, and a variety of claims around greenwashing and inadequate disclosures. To kick off with, I wondered, Jojo, if we might ask your thoughts around, um, for the consumer sector specifically, what are some of the risks you're seeing for companies with regard to their advertising and packaging in particular? Are there particular terms and things which might trigger litigation risk from that perspective?
1: Yeah, thanks, Tim. So indeed, we have uh, seen emerging uh, litigation risks concerning misleading advertising, particularly on product packaging and labeling in the consumer sector. Um, Consumers may shift to uh, sustainable products or more climate-friendly products, and therefore there are incentives for companies to invest in the manufacturing of more climate-friendly products and or promote uh, the environmental impact of the products in the advertising materials in an attempt to capture the increasing demand for such products some consumer sector companies um, engage in um, what we call greenwashing, which is misstating the environmental impact of the products in order to attract those customers this is harmful to the consumers because they are being l- misled in their purchasing decisions by way of example Many products are labeled as recyclable, even if they are only partially recyclable or not able to be processed in the community. And uh, broad and general terms, such as environmental friendly, eco-friendly, sustainable, et cetera, can also trigger litigation, especially where there is a lack of supervision and control in the supply chain to ensure the products live up to the labels. These labels are also more likely to be inaccurate and misleading because their meaning can be quite ambiguous if there are cl- no clear explanations. Companies, I think, would therefore have to be aware of and avoid commercial practices, which could cause misinformation or confusion.
0: Mark, I think I know the answer to this, but (laughs) what's your view of of that trend in Australia?
2: Yeah, very similar, Tim, to the sorts of issues that Jojo was outlining. I think uh, particularly recently from a regulator perspective, uh, we've seen um, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, the ACCC, um, you know, both uh, make very clear public statements about its enforcement focus, but also um, bringing a number of um, enforcement actions uh, that are focused on uh, greenwashing and ESG-related credentials. So, I think w- one point to mention is uh, just uh, within the last few months, the AIPC as well as ASIC have. Announced their enforcement priorities for the next year um, within the um, the ACCC's consumer and fair trading division. Um, they've noted that environmental claims and sustainability will be a key focus, uh, and you know, similar to the position that JoJo mentioned in Hong Kong. Uh, The ACCC has called out that greenwashing is a real concern for both consumers and businesses, and consumers are often unable to determine the veracity um, of the product's green credentials. um, Reducing that can have sort of follow-on impacts about um, confidence in the market, as well as potentially influencing purchasing decisions. So that's going to be uh, a key focus for the ACCC uh, going forward. Um, So not just, I think, at the consumer end of things, but also within um, supply chain issues and the, um, the way in which uh, companies uh, uh, put forward statements about um, you know, the product overall, as well as um, the supply chain and, and um, manufacturing process. Uh, this isn't something that is entirely new at all uh, in Australia. Uh, the ACCC has in the past brought actions uh in the sort of environmental space uh for example in 2018 uh bringing proceedings against Woolworths alleging that various environmental credentials made on certain product packaging um were were misleading uh that case was ultimately unsuccessful um but it does uh, underscore uh the ACCC's uh long focus on these issues
0: mm. it's interesting it, it's um when we started off on the, the journey of helping clients with their reporting under the Modern Slavery Act four or five years ago, um, this was a real area in relation to social sustainability claims. And it, it really now seems like the ACCC and others are really honing in on the environmental side of that as well, including in relation to some of the supply chain issues that, that you flagged there, Mark. The, why don't we turn to... ESG disclosure in terms of corporate reporting, which is a topic very close to my heart and increasingly close to the heart of the Australian Securities and Investment Commission. Um, Jojo and Mark, what's your take on the current landscape on ESG disclosure risks for consumer companies? We, We might start with you, Jojo.
1: Sure. Um, So I guess just to give a little bit of context there, actually, both uh, Hong Kong and mainland China regulators are picking up the pace to prescribe greater extent of um, ESG related disclosures. And as a result, an increasing number of companies have made these ESG disclosures in their corporate statements. Um, Companies are now at a high risk where they make four statements um, about specific facts on their operations which could influence consumers. So for example, statements regarding suppliers' compliance with ESG standards may be the basis of a claim if the compliance is not actually enforced. On the other hand, statements which are purely forward-looking are normally not enough to make out a claim. Hong Kong is very well placed to implement global standards on ESG disclosure, given that the CEO of the SFC also um, is the chairman of the Board of International Organization of Securities Commissions, which is very heavily involved in the development of such standards. Regulators in Hong Kong in general have also introduced uh, prescriptive regulations and guidance to tackle any deficiencies in respect of um, ESG disclosures. I guess just to give everyone one example, in um, November 2021, so not too long ago, in order to provide practical tips and step-by-step guidance to assist listed companies in preparing their reporting, the Stock Exchange of Hong Kong has published its guidance on climate disclosures. Which sets out disclosures of a hypothetical company uh, that is principally engaged in manufacturing in the mainland China with helpful sample disclosures such as greenhouse gas emissions and the related risk, et cetera, to give um, companies the necessary guidance uh, to make the reporting.
2: And I think sort of similar themes here as well, um JoJo, from a corporate disclosure perspective, as Tim uh, you will well know. Um, so, that's both on the regulatory side uh, and from a litigation perspective. So, uh, on, on the regulatory side, as I mentioned, our corporate regulator ASIC uh, echoed the sorts of sentiments that I mentioned that the ACCC has made uh, regarding ESG uh, disclosures and the prominence that's going to be uh, afforded to that from an enforcement perspective. Um, you know, we've been involved in and seen a number of instances of. Um, ASIC, uh, you know, intervening in relation to um, draft disclosure statements and uh, companies needing to be very careful in relation to their ESG commitments. Um, from a litigation perspective, uh, there have been now in Australia, uh, of course, a number of uh, greenwashing related um, claims that have been launched Uh, One to mention um, is a claim that's being commenced against an oil and gas company in relation to statements that the company made in its annual report about um, the use of the term clean energy and also its net zero target. Uh, The activist group behind that alleges that there's an absence of uh, reasonable grounds uh, for the company to get to its net zero target. Um, That is the first claim of its kind uh, globally that's focused on a net zero uh, target, um, a similar net zero focus claim has now been brought in in France. And so uh, a, as we see from a litigation perspective, uh, there is a little bit of um, cross fertilization, if you like, uh, across jurisdictions. Um, turning then to other examples uh, in the US, uh, I think in 2021, there were several claim, uh, class actions commenced class action claims that specifically mentioned greenwashing uh, and then others that focused on broader um, social and governance type practices, uh, a, a, again, uh, the key focus being alleged uh, overstatements uh, in, in corporate disclosures.
0: I guess just turning to broader environmental litigation risks, um, you know, manufacturing is clearly a very important element in the consumer sector supply chain. Are there litigation risks associated with environmental concerns in manufacturing coming through?
1: Yeah, so I think from from what I see, yes, definitely. Uh, Manufacturers of uh, consumer products may be blamed for uh, manufacturing harmful products uh, or emitting greenhouse gases during the production process. This type of litigation, I would say, is more relevant in mainland China, where many factories are based. The Chinese government has also implemented quite a unique regime for bringing ESG litigations against manufacturers, which has encouraged the emergence of this type of litigation. So for example, in 2017, the Chinese government has amended uh, the um, national laws to allow the National Prosecution Agency to bring civil litigations targeting environmental pollution or other activities that are harmful to public interest in China. The law also um, allows the prosecution to support designated NGOs in bringing this type of um, litigation.
0: Mm. Mark, in Australia, I know there's been quite a bit of movement lately. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about some of the landmark cases that we're starting to see
2: come through, uh,
0: which might be sort of at that level of affecting policy and
2: business. Sure. Yeah. So there's really three themes I think to call out. Um, sort of, firstly, are the greenwashing related claims, which I've I've mentioned. Uh, Secondly, I think uh, worth noting the focus in Australia on novel uh, tort-based claims, uh, and I'll come on to describe some examples of of these, where it's alleged uh, directly against a company or a government agency that they're under a duty of care to uh, address ESG issues uh, in in these examples, uh, address uh, climate change impacts. Uh, And then thirdly, claims, as you say, Tim, that are focused on uh, government agencies and seeking to affect changes in government policies that then might have a broader impact on um, on uh, w- the wider business environment. So just to give a few examples, uh, one notable one is uh, was commenced in October 2021, which is uh, a landmark class action against the Australian government, which was commenced by First Nation leaders on behalf of Torres Strait Islanders in relation to climate change impacts, and in particular, uh, impacts arising from uh, rising sea levels. And that is uh, the first class action, uh, climate class action of its kind, brought by First Nation leaders in Australia. And the claim alleges a breach of a novel duty of care owed to Torres Strait Islanders, which would require the Commonwealth Government to, quote, take reasonable steps to protect them, their culture, and their environment from harms caused by climate change. But what's really interesting about the claim is that the alleged duty of care is said not to arise so much from the Commonwealth's position as the federal government per se, uh, but from ordinary taught based principles about knowledge and foreseeability of harm of climate change. So um, it has been suggested in, in commentary and by activists that this sort of claim, uh, if successful, might be um, something that could be also um, th- that sort of novel duty uh, brought against Uh, non-government entities, uh, corporations, individuals and the like. Um, The second case to mention that uh, probably all of the listeners will be familiar with, it's had a lot of coverage, is the Sharma case. Uh, And so this was brought by uh, a group of young children in Australia against the Minister for the Environment. Um, The uh, judge at first instance in the federal court, Justice Bromberg, uh, found that uh, the minister, uh, in considering... Uh, whether or not to grant an approval um, of a um, mine extension in New South Wales, um, owed a duty of care to young Australian children who might suffer potential, quote, catastrophic harm from climate change implications um, that might be uh, linked to uh, the the coal mine extension and and the related substantial emissions. So that decision was very significant at first instance. Um, It uh, led to uh, certainly... Uh, a change in uh, regulatory processes and a real focus on uh, scrutinising in a whole range of um, government decisions what uh, relevant climate change impacts might be. Um, That decision was then uh, appealed and earlier this year, uh, the full federal court uh, overturned the decision of Justice Bromberg um, and uh, rejected, in the circumstances of this case at least, Um, that the Minister for the Environment owed a novel duty of care, Um, in particular identifying issues such as um, the connection between the emissions in question and and the harm uh, being too remote from one another, the duty being indeterminate, it it more being a matter for um, the parliament rather than uh, courts to seek to develop a duty of this kind. Uh, So to some extent that poured cold water on what had been Um, some advancing uh, developments in common law in Australia in these types of duties. So those sort of claims will now be more challenging to make out. Uh, But I think what that will inevitably mean is that litigation arises, similar sorts of claims arise uh, using different causes of action. So rather than developing novel duties of care, there might instead be a focus on greenwashing type claims. There might be uh, also a focus on uh, administrative law, uh, you know, public law challenges to government decisions to seek to affect um, policy change that will then have a flow on effect to business. So, um, th- you know, that's probably the key uh, development from from down here. But we all do watch uh, the First Nations case, this Pabai Pabai case with interest as it develops.
0: Thanks, thanks, Mark. And uh we might we might wrap up there. Thank you, Jojo and Mark, for sharing your insights on ESG litigation for the consumer sector today. We like to close each of these podcasts with a bit of an interesting fact from the world of ESG. And this time we've we've picked one fittingly for the consumer sector and actually my own personal proclivities because it is wine-based. Um, For today's fact, we we turn to France, where French wine growers across the hillsides in Chablis are currently battling frost, having to light candles, use electrical lines or spray buds with water to protect the vines from late frost. The frost is particularly frustrating after a similar similar phenomenon hit the vineyards last year, with the French government officials describing it as the greatest agricultural catastrophe since the beginning of the century, leading to some €2 billion in losses. Researchers from the World Weather Attribution Group have studied the effect of the 2021 frost and concluded that the warming caused by man-made emissions had coaxed the plants into exposing their young leaves early before a blast of Arctic cold reached Europe in April. In Australia, the wine industry has been also preparing for different weather conditions um, with an expectation that there'll be hotter and drier conditions along with bushfires in Australia in the future Longer term, there may be also pests and disease as well as water security issues. In 2019, Wine Australia released the Wine Climate Atlas with the University of Tasmania, which provides detailed projections for key wine regions in the short, medium and long term, looking out to 2100. A small silver lining Amongst the challenges, there are some opportunities. Specifically, grape growing areas are expected to expand into different regions. And that the research also suggests that there's large scope to expand the range of varieties which are being grown to be better suited to warmer and dry, drier climates. Currently worldwide, about 80% of wine production only uses 1% of the available grapevine diversity, but that may well change in the future. As ever, Thanks for listening. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Free Hills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.